Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Joshua 6, 1 to 21. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 1b to verse 11. Again, our scripture reading is Joshua 6, verses 1 to 21. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 1b through verse 11. Brothers and sisters, please give your full attention to the reading of God's most holy word. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before them. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets, trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men who were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets, trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the, the, of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel 4, 
beginning at verse 1b and reading through verse 11. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came up to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned of the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of, the, of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting of the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we need your spirit to illumine our minds. We confess, O oh Lord, that your word is filled with passages, some of which are easy to understand and some of which are quite difficult and challenging. What does it mean that 34,000 of your people in these two battles fell? How do we understand your hand in all of this, your will in all of this? Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word today. We thank you that the author of all scripture, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the hearts of all who believe. And that by his power, we have illumination. We are able to gain understanding in your word. And so we pray, Lord, for your guidance now. We pray that you would guide the one who preaches, that you would guide the ones who hear. We ask, O oh Lord, that even during the preaching of your word this morning, we would worship you, the living and true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you likely will remember from several weeks ago when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that because of the terrible sins of the high priest's sons, God announced to Eli through an unnamed prophet that he was going to reject the house of Eli as priests in his tabernacle. The prophet told Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 34, that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would both die on the same day. And then in chapter 3, when Yahweh called Samuel to be a prophet, his first prophecy was about how God was going to bring judgment on the house of Eli. God told Samuel in 
chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11, rather, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Chapter 4 of 1 Samuel is the fulfillment of these prophecies. We saw before how the sins of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas weren't just limited to those three people or even their extended family. Because they were leaders in Israel, their sinfulness led to the corruption of many of the people in Israel. And because of that, as we saw in chapter 3, the word of the Lord had become rare. With the exception of this one lone unnamed prophet who comes in chapter 2, the word of the Lord had not been given to the people in quite some time. And this famine of the word of God was a form of chastisement for God's people. But the events in chapter 4 go beyond chastisement to outright punishment for the sins of the people of Israel. Now, chapter 4 contains two halves of one story. The first half deals with the defeat of Israel, the death of Eli's sons, and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. The second half is about the people's shock over the loss of the Ark and the death of Eli. Our focus this morning will be on the first half of the story. And what this portion of God's Word makes very clear is that the corruption among the priesthood had become widespread among the people of God. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to consider uh, this thought. God will not let His people manipulate Him like some magical force. He is Almighty God who keeps His Word and brings about victory over sin and death. Again, God will not let His people manipulate Him like some magical force. He is Almighty God who keeps His Word and brings about victory over sin and death. The sermon this morning is divided into three sections. The first is stone versus water. The second is the wrong answer to the right question. And the third is victory in defeat. So again, stone versus water, that's the first point of the sermon. The second point, the wrong answer to the right question. And the third, victory in defeat. So let's look at the first section this morning, stone versus water. Verses 1b and following say this, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. When we read Ebenezer in this verse, many will remember that Ebenezer is the name that Samuel gave to the stone that he set up after the Lord brought about the defeat of the Philistines in chapter 7. By that time, the ark has been restored to Israel. And that was a memorial stone that Samuel placed to commemorate the victory. The Ebenezer in our passage is the name not of, of the stone, not of the place where the stone was. It's the name of a town. And it's at a different location than where Samuel set up this stone that he named Ebenezer. In both cases, the name means stone of help or rock of help. And most likely in chapter 7, Samuel had in mind the defeat of Israel that took place near the town of Ebenezer when he set up the memorial stone between Mizpah and Shen, which lay to the southwest of Shiloh. Of course, he's remembering the great victory that they had experienced and that God truly had proven himself to be the stone of help for them in, the, in that victory against the Philistines. But no doubt he's remembering also this terrible defeat the towns of Ebenezer and Aphek were to the northwest of Shiloh. And the fact that the people, the leaders, uh, the, the, the battle uh, leaders of 
of Israel chose Ebenezer, the stone of help, as their forward operating base to go into battle against the Philistines showed that the people still believe that they enjoy the full favor of Yahweh despite their slide into corruption. Remember, the word of the Lord was rare. We saw in the passage from Joshua chapter 6 that God there is constantly giving them his word. He's speaking to Joshua. He's speaking through Joshua to the people. He gives them a definite plan of how they are to carry out that battle, naming every detail and laying it out precisely. There's no record of any of this taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Philistines were encamped at Aphek, which means head or source of the spring. The Israelites' arrogance didn't begin with their bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the Philistines. It was already on display in this first battle. They just knew that their stone of help, the Lord, was going to bring them victory like he had always done. They were certain that the Lord was with them in battle as hinted at by the fact that they encamped at Ebenezer. They thought of this battle, and especially the next one, as if it were Jericho all over again, when in reality it was the battle of Ai Redux. It was warmed over Ai. God reminded Joshua when he was old and advanced in years in Joshua chapter 13 that the land of the Philistines had yet to be brought into possession of the Israelites. And so the Israelites in our passage they were continuing to carry out their duty to subdue the land. But they had forgotten an important element. They had forgotten that the war that they were to be engaged in was a holy war. And God had commanded them to fight it in order to root out the idolatry of the pagan peoples who lived in the promised land prior to their coming there. That was their job. That was the reason they were fighting against the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Philistines. The problem was that God's people themselves had begun, to re had begun to resemble the very people they were tasked with taking out. Even if they weren't engaged in outright pagan idolatry, though chapter 7 says that many were, they were allowing an ever-spreading corruption. A corruption that saw as its source the tabernacle and which flowed out the front doors to all the people. A couple of summers ago, our family had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. And I know that many of you have been there. If you haven't been there, you've seen the pictures. And you know that it is a sight to behold. But pictures can't do it justice. And when you're standing there on the rim of the Grand Canyon, and you consider the fact that it is just a river of water that has cut through rock over a, a long period of time, it's amazing to contemplate that, that water has the ability to cut through rock. Today we have machines called abrasive water jets that are capable of cutting through rock as hard as granite. They can cut through materials like metal in a matter of minutes. The Israelites were presuming upon God's strength to carry them through this battle with the Philistines, which was indicated by the fact that they made their base of operation the town of Ebenezer the rock of strength. They were certain that he would bring victory in battle even while their hearts were far from him. 
What was expected to be an easy victory against the Philistines who had been encamped at the source of streams turned into defeat. The water, as it were, analogically cut them down. And verse 2 says that the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated, with the Philistines cutting, killing about 4,000 men on the battlefield. This brings us to the second point of the sermon, the wrong answer to the right question. This defeat that took place at the beginning of chapter 4, at the hands of the Philistines, it caused the elders of Israel to do some soul-searching. They asked in verse 3, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. They understood by whose hand the defeat had come. They understood correctly that the Philistines would not have been able to defeat them if God was with them. And so they correctly concluded that ultimately it was God who defeated them in battle. Soul searching can be beneficial if, if, it reads, if it leads you to the correct decision, the right answer. After arriving at the correct conclusion that God had defeated them, the elders decided that the right answer to their question, why has Yahweh defeated us today, was to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them the next time they went out against the Philistines. Surely the Lord will be with us. He will cause us to defeat the Philistines by his strength. And so the second half of verse 3 says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now some of your translations may have that he may come among us and save us. The ESV has a footnote with the alternate rendering. And the pronoun he makes the thinking of the Israelites a little more clear to us. But either way it's translated, the Israelites thought that the Ark of the Covenant was more than merely a sign or a symbol of God's presence. That it was more than just a representation of his presence. That the Ark of the Covenant was God himself. And so they had replaced the one pointed to by the sign with the sign itself. They thought that by bringing the ark into the next battle with the Philistines, they were bringing God himself with them. And what they failed to understand is that in previous victories in battle, it was in fact God who led them in battle. He is the divine warrior who fights the battles on behalf of his people. Now it is true that in previous battles, Israel had brought the ark of the covenant with them, but they did so at the command and the direction of God himself. In the battle of Jericho, it was God who gave the orders. He told Joshua that the ark would go with them in battle against Jericho. In reality, the battle, as far as the Israelites were concerned, was perfect obedience to the Lord in their marching around Jericho and blowing the trumpets. But the account of the battle makes it very clear that God was the one who did the fighting. God was the one who brought about the destruction of the walls. By the time of the battle against the Philistines in our chapter, the elders seem to have begun to view the ark as some sort of a lucky talisman, a lucky charm. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on 1 Samuel calls the Israelites' theology here rabbit foot theology. They rub it the right way, everything's going to fall into place, it's going to happen. They believe that bringing the ark into battle would begin a mechanistic process that would result in victory over the Philistines. Insert the coin into slot A, 
And out of the machine pops the result that you want. They no longer saw the ark as representing the presence of Almighty God who made an unbreakable covenant with them and as a result rescued them from the slavery of Egypt. They saw the ark as merely a means to an end. They believed that they could make God do their bidding. They saw it as this sort of magical power. And that by bringing it into battle, it would naturally, of course it would cause everything to go their way. And we can do this too. We are just as capable in our day in the 21st century, as sophisticated as we think we are, of engaging in superstitious beliefs and practices as the Israelites were in their day. We think that we can get God to do what we want Him to do. If everything's going right in our life, well, I've just got to make sure that I thank the Lord. And everything's going to keep going right. I got the car of my dreams. I need to make sure the Lord, to make sure I put everything in the right order. Thank God, because I want things to continue to flow according to the way it's going right now. We still try to manipulate the Lord to get Him to do what we want Him to do as if we know better than He does. As one commentator writes on this passage, actually the elders are angry because they have been left in the lurch. And it ought also to be mentioned that no serious soul-searching follows after this defeat, this first defeat at the hands of the Philistines, but that the elders quickly switch to arranging a solution which profoundly involves God without his being consulted as to his opinion and without the offering of sacrifices to propitiate him. And so verse 4 says, So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The one thing the elders' decision to bring the Ark to the next battle actually did was to put Hophni and Phinehas in position for the prophecy against them to be fulfilled. That's an important point which will come up later. The evidence that the corruption among Eli's family had spread to the general population of Israel is found in verse 5, where we read that when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now that is not to say that every single foot soldier in Israel's army regarded the Ark as a good luck charm, but enough of them saw its presence as the solution to their problem of risking, risking another defeat. Rather than resorting to hauling the ark to Ebenezer from Shiloh to be used as some sort of secret weapon, the right answer to their question, why has God brought about this defeat upon his people? The right answer to their question was for all of Israel to fall on their faces before the Lord in repentance for their sins, begging him for forgiveness. That was the right answer. That is not the solution. That's not the answer that the people came up with. That brings us to our third and final point of the sermon today, victory and defeat. Now the next few, few verses in chapter 4, they let the reader think, especially if you're reading this for the first time, just for a moment that the Israelites are actually going to prevail. 
Sounds like things are going to go their way. In verses 6 to 8, the Philistines, when they hear this shout from the Israelite camp, they realize that this, this ark has come into the camp. They become very concerned. They express serious reservations about battling the Israelites. They say in verse 7, a God has come into their camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. The Philistines reveal that they have heard the stories of what God did, at least a God in their mind, because they were pagans. They've heard the stories about how God struck the Egyptians with plagues. They had a type of fear of the Lord. In some ways, they were more fearful of the Lord than the Israelites were, but it wasn't the fear of the Lord that accompanies faith in the Lord. Their reaction to the presence of the ark in the Israelite camp betrays their pagan understanding of God, and in reality, it is not too far off from what the people of Israel believed about God. Even so, the Philistines forge into battle. Verse 9 says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And then in verses 10 and 11, we have a very brief description of what happens next. Verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Israel had been confident that this time they would win. They had a secret weapon. But this battle, just like the first, ended in defeat, except this time the casualty list was far, far longer. 30,000 men fell. It was indeed a slaughter, as verse 10 describes it. But to add to Israel's misery, if it wasn't already bad enough, verse 11 says, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that's a pretty somber note for our sermon passage to end on. It is true that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. It's true that massive numbers of Israelite soldiers died. But this passage also shows us that God is true to His Word. That what He has said will come to pass will come to pass. It does come to pass. God told Eli in chapter 2 that He would give Eli a sign. Both of his sons would die on the same day, and they would die by the sword of men. But remember that God immediately followed that prophecy in chapter 2, that prophecy of doom, with a promise. Chapter 2, verse 35 says this, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. God uses signs to prove that what he says will come to pass will come to pass. God promised Eli that his sons were going to fall in battle. He promised Eli that his house as priest would end and that no more of his sons would serve. But he also promised Eli that he would bring about a new priest. A forever priest. A priest who would serve before the anointed one forever. You remember the passage in Isaiah chapter four, 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign was the virgin conceiving a son and giving birth to that son. And this sign served as proof that the son of the virgin was in fact the son of God. God himself who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The death of Hophni and Phinehas was a sign as well. It was a grim sign. It was a dark sign. But what it meant was that God was setting in motion His plan to bring about the conception of Emmanuel in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Israel's defeat resulted in the house of Eli being removed from the priesthood. It paved the way for Samuel, who in chapter 7 begins to, to, to rise from the ashes of the household of Eli. And as, as Samuel is established, he would pave the way for the establishment of the king in Israel. Israel's defeat led ultimately to the people of Israel demanding a king from the Lord. Their motives were sinful. God tells Samuel in chapter 8 that their de demand for a king was a rejection of God as their king. And God gives them Saul. He's the king they wanted. He's the king they deserved. And it was calamitous, his, uh, his, uh, his time as king. Israel's second king is described by God himself as a man after his own heart. He's imperfect, yes. He's a sinner, absolutely. He stands in stark contrast to his son, not first generation son, or second or third or fourth, but to his later and greater son, King Jesus. Now all that Israel could see after their first defeat by the Philistines was that they had to beat them the next time they went into battle. All they cared about was short-term victory in battle. They didn't care about winning the war. They had forgotten that the war that they were engaged in was a spiritual war. It was holy war. They were not fighting against flesh and blood. They were eradicating the false religion, the false idolatry of the people who inhabited the land. And the reality was in the intervening years in that time between Jericho in our passage in 1 Samuel, many of the Israelites had taken up the false religion. They had embraced these false gods. They had forgotten, they had rejected the God of Israel who delivered them out of bondage. And had embraced these gods of fertility. But here's what this battle proves. Here's what this defeat and the loss of 34,000 souls proves God had not forgotten them. Though they had forgotten Him. Though they had rebelled against Him. Though they had worshipped false gods. Though they had rejected Him. He had not forgotten them. He did not forget His promise. The battle here between Israel and the Philistines, it resulted in the sign coming to pass. Hophni and Phinehas died the same day by the sword of men. God understands then, and He knows even now, that the real battle is spiritual. 
And just as God guided Israel in battle, even in defeat, even into the defeat, so he guides us to ultimate victory, the salvation of our souls. He will do what he says he will do. He will cause all things to happen for your and my salvation. God uses even the defeats in our lives to fulfill his promises. And that will bring about the ultimate victory. The signs prove that it is true. The signs prove that you can trust in the God who made promises to his people. Because he is faithful. He's faithful to his people even when his people is not faithful to him. And that, brothers, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that though we forget who we are in Christ sometimes, though we engage in sinful behavior, which is in fact and in truth rebellion against you, though we forget you, O oh Lord, you do not forget us, and you have not forgotten your promises to us. We are grateful to you, O oh Lord, that you are faithful and true to fulfill every promise. We're thankful, dear Lord, that the promise has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us to be thankful. That you would cause us to have deep and abiding gratitude in our hearts for everything that you have done for us. We pray, dear Lord, that you would fill us with the knowledge that you will bring about victory because you have already caused it to be. You have already ensured that it will happen. Thank you, O oh Lord, for winning the battle, for fighting it on our behalf. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.